This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you on this Saturday morning for our 58th consecutive program dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, What a difference in the past three weeks since our last live program. Uh, So much has changed. Uh, I was away in Vermont where it was interesting to see that they have an 85% vaccination rate. That means 85% of the citizens of Vermont are fully vaccinated. And I found it interesting that they've reached such a high level so quickly. And there was a recent podcast interview with their director of public health. And they asked him the same question as to why have Vermonters embraced the vaccine so readily and are ready to move on from this COVID-19 virus. And his point was that there are three things Vermonters believe in. One is that they really want to preserve their own health. They look out carefully for the health of their family. But the third thing was interesting, and he felt You know, because of the harsh winters here, Vermonters look out for their neighbors. They always check in on their neighbors, and they always do things for their neighbors. And it was their perception that getting vaccinated is something you do not only for yourself, but your neighbors. And I thought that was just a great summary. It's just an interesting approach to life and not just this battle with the pandemic. On the way home from Vermont uh, with my wife, we had the sad situation of witnessing a motorcycle accident. Um, we came upon the scene where the accident had occurred in, in Chicopee, Massachusetts, and there was a motorcyclist who was political, critically injured. And uh, naturally, I stopped, and my wife was able to pull the car around, and I came upon the scene, and there were already many people there working to help save a life. And it was interesting how people from the other side, and there were people who were EMS people driving by, there were nurses, um, there was me, we were doing CPR, an ED physician stopped. And I thought that, isn't that what we're about in this country? Um, Isn't that what we do when we see an accident and we see someone in danger in some way is we immediately think to get there and help, which is obviously the definition of bravery when you put your own circumstance behind that of the needs of someone else. 
and I and I think those analogies are not lost on how we're how we should be dealing with the pandemic. The statistics now are just astonishing. We have over 612,000 dead Americans. We've only vaccinated about half of our country. We have plenty of vaccines available. And whenever we look at these maps where we're having trouble getting people vaccinated, it's always in some politically divided area. But we have to deal with it locally as well. And in Connecticut, we're not doing that well. On July 10th, the day of our last live program, our positivity rate for COVID-19 was only 0.82%, less than 1%. And we had been at the less than 1% level for quite a while. The positivity rate as of yesterday in the state of Connecticut is now 2.35%. So we are now approaching the numbers where we were last year. Our number of hospitalizations in Connecticut has also increased. Fortunately, the number of deaths has not increased, but hospitalizations have increased. Fully vaccinated people in Connecticut, the number is up to 63%. We've got a lot of work to do. Most recently, we have looked at it countywide, and those that are now sub areas of what they define as substantial COVID transmission. Earlier in the week, it was Hartford, New London, and New Haven counties. As of today, we've now added Fairfield, Tolland, and Wyndham counties under substantial. So now there are only two counties left, Litchfield and Middlesex County, which fit into the category of moderate. So what does that mean? That means anyone over the age of two should be wearing a mask in public indoor spaces. That's all public indoor spaces, not in your home. If everyone is vaccinated, but in public indoor spaces, when you go to the store, when you go to stop and shop, okay, you should be wearing a mask as should the employees of stop and shop or Walmart or wherever you go to shop. Because there are people there without masks who have not been vaccinated. And as we're going to talk a little bit about a little later, we're going to be talking about the recent outbreak in Provincetown in Massachusetts. Where we have found out now that people who are vaccinated can transmit the virus. That's something, as you remember from this show, and it's not like, oh, my gosh, they lied to us. Nobody lied. This virus is changing. The scene is changing. We're moving along here, and we're learning more about it. But the new Delta variant is so transmissible that people can transmit it who have been vaccinated and who are asymptomatic without symptoms. That's why we're going back to mass. Now, one of the things that came up really in the past three weeks was the J&J vaccine and Guillain-Barre syndrome. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Johnson and Johnson vaccine, people are saying, can cause Guillain-Barre syndrome. Guillain-Barre syndrome is 
a syndrome which I'm very familiar with because it is a neurologic syn syndrome that results in diffuse weakness, loss of sensation. It is rare. It can be seen in vaccines where you use a viral vector, which is what the J&J &J vaccine uses. And it's easily treated with intravenous immune globulin. So the difference here is that, first of all, that syndrome occurs in the first two weeks, only in the first two weeks of getting the vaccine. It is rare even in the case of people who have gotten the vaccine and can be easily treated when recognized. You don't see it with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. So I want people to understand that. But in proportion to all of the millions of people who have gotten the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, it is not alarming that some people have come down with the Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a syndrome of weakness and numbness that is progressive and should require immediate attention. We're going to take a short break. And then I wanted to let you know, at the bottom of the hour, uh, I have a special guest today, Dr. David Bannock. He's an MD. He also has a master's degree in public health. He is an associate professor of medicine at the University of Connecticut. He is head of the infection prevention program at the University of Connecticut. And we're going to ask him a lot of questions because he is a trusted resource for me and should be for you in terms of how we should be dealing with masks, how we're going to deal with boosters, and try to resolve some of the confusion that's going on right now. With that, we're going to take a short break, and then I'll be back. Uh, we're going to be discussing a little bit more about what went on in Provincetown and uh, some of the opinions that have been coming in um, that I wanted to discuss. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, Saturday morning, 11 till noon, on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be back with you. Uh, so one of the things I mentioned uh, previously was this recent outbreak in Provincetown, Massachusetts. And uh, the outbreak has involved the Delta variant. And it's interesting because 75% of the people who became infected with the Delta variant at this time were fully vaccinated. It's important to note, of all the people who became ill, there were no deaths. And what was interesting was that Provincetown had a very low rate of infection back on July 4th, which was a time of celebration. A lot of people came out there, 4th of July. There were a lot of large gatherings, both private and public, in bars and clubs. And it was expected that the transmission rate would be pretty low because that's what they were working off of what we have found now from the studies there is that that was not the case that people who have been vaccinated can transmit this new variant of the delta variant and that really is somewhat frightening because now we're back to the idea of asymptomatic transmission in one of our earlier shows, we talked about one of the terms in infectious disease being the R-naught, 
That is how trans a measure of how transmissible the virus is. So with the alpha variant, the original COVID-19 variant that we started dealing with in 2019 and 2020, for every person who was vaccinated, they would, for every person who was infected, I correct myself, who was infected, they would transmit the virus to two or three other people. With the Delta variant, it is so much more transmissible that it is believed that for every person who is infected, they can transmit it to nine other people. And the transmission, once again, is respiratory. But it is very brief. They believe it's as, as short as 15 seconds. Meaning that a conversation with someone who is infected, may not have symptoms, probably not vaccinated. So the point there is that with that, they could then transmit the virus. So, when we look at this, we really have to be cautious. So how do we figure this out? How do we stop this? Well, we go back to what we've said before, right? Masks, social distancing, hand washing. Those are the ways we know that work from our previous experience with the Alpha variant. What's also noted is that of the people who became infected, not only were there no deaths, but these vaccines are designed to keep people alive. The vaccines are designed so that instead of developing a fatal pneumonia, you kind of develop a nuisance kind of cold, but a highly transmissible type of cold. So we're learning a lot. And we better learn it fast because this is summer, right? The rates go down in summer of viruses. Why? Because people are outside more. You're spending more time outside, playing sports, going to the beach. You're not in a closed environment with people. So you can figure that come fall and winter, those numbers are going to rise. So if we're dealing with numbers that are rising and people becoming ill. And if you talk to physicians in Florida, Alabama, Missouri, their emergency rooms are filled in the summer with people with COVID. So with that, we need to really start to wear masks again. That's the explanation as best that I understand it. And we are going to chat with my guest a little bit more about that. One note, and, and I think it's important to note, is there's a lot of misinformation. And, and when you get into political opinions, mixing with science, it never works. And that recently happened this past week um, with an editorial written by Chris Powell of the Journal Inquirer. And... Uh, also, the fact that he appears, he's a regular uh, guest on the morning show with Ray. And, and actually, his article was about a 
the essentially supporting vaccine skepticism. And he is obviously a vaccine skeptic. What was interesting was that as he talked, this was a very rare thing, because if anybody listens to WTIC regularly, they will know how benign an interviewer Ray is. And yet he corrected him several times during his moments on the soapbox. But let's talk about it. Some of the points he brings up are that this vaccine is only approved for emergency use. That's absolutely true. We hope that's going to change in the next couple of months. But he also talks that it's an emergency use because there are tens of thousands of adverse reactions. Well, what he fails to mention is the denominator, right? So when you talk about an adverse reaction, the next word should be these reactions out of how many ed how many vaccines were administered. Do you realize we have now administered over 4 billion, that's with a B, over 4 billion vaccinations worldwide. So his number of tens of thousands of adverse reactions. Now, adverse reactions could be a rash, could be reddening, it could be any number of things. But when you talk numbers, you have to be somewhat honest about it. And never in the history of man have we reached these numbers in such a short period of time to administer 4 billion vaccines already. He also likes to emphasize that we are need to develop treatment with ivermectin, uh, which is used in India, the Czech Republic, South Africa, and Latin America. What he's talking about is using ivermectin as a treatment. So understand the insanity of that. We're now treating a condition that's avoidable. I have nothing against treatment, but if you can avoid the condition, that's like treating lung cancer because we still allow smoking in public. Remember that? No one people could smoke wherever they wanted and people getting secondary smoke got lung cancer. Yeah, that's what happened. He also talks about this being a worldwide medical experiment. This is not an experiment, folks. This is a war. And healthcare workers are on the front lines. They are the combatants. Unfortunately, vaccines are clearly the best weapon we have in this war. This is not an experiment. And it's important that folks like Mr. Powell and others, I don't want to just pick on him, because obviously he's... He, I've read his things before, in many cases, very reasonable guy. But in this case, he's ignored the science in order to rally his political followers. And that's the problem here. So the sooner Mr. Powell and his opinion writers realized that we are at war and that there are people dying, and that we need to come together to fight this thing by getting vaccinated, the better off all of us are going to be. With that, we're going to take a short break. And then we're going to be back in the second half of this program with my guest, Dr. David Bannock from the University of Connecticut. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Healthy Rounds. 
Sports with Dr. Anthony Alessi, Saturday morning, 11 till noon on WTIC News Talk 1080 at WTIC.com. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And it's great to have as my guest today, Dr. David Bannock. Dr. Bannock is a medical doctor. He has a master's degree in public health. He's an associate professor of medicine at the University of Connecticut and head of the infection prevention program at the University of Connecticut. More importantly, he has been a trusted resource for me and my family um, as we have moved through the uh, pandemic. Uh, David, welcome to the show. Thanks, uh, Dr. Lussie. Thanks for having me on. Um, let's talk a little bit. Uh, let's uh, get right to it. We're dealing with the Delta variant. Can you explain to our listeners what has evolved and why we're in the situation we're in right now? Sure. Um, so, you know, when uh, we look back over what's happened over the last 18 months, um, the you know COVID-19, the SARS-CoV-2 virus originated in its wild type form. And over time, as with as what happens with um, almost all respiratory viruses, you know, mutations occur and certain variants that are um, more that spread more easily, more transmissible, um, start to emerge and become the dominant variant. So you may recall a few months ago, we were talking about the B117 variant, which is the alpha variant um, that originated in the UK, starting to become the dominant variant. And now we're seeing this Delta variant, um, which was uh, first identified in Asia. Um, and has now spread globally. Um, it seems to be very transmissible, seems to spread very easily, um, particularly among unvaccinated populations. And, um, you know, that's what we're up against, um, seeing uh, our uptick in cases here in the U.S. and throughout uh, many parts of the world. David, we talked a little bit earlier on the show about the data coming from Provincetown, Massachusetts, and why that's so significant, because so many people there who were vaccinated did contract the Delta variant. Can you talk a little bit about that and and that information that was provided to us recently? Sure. So yeah, I think that's a um, an important report that just came out from CDC. So in Provincetown, um, over uh, the first half of July, uh, there was a, a huge uh, gathering of um, individuals, um, you know, thousands, potentially tens of thousands of individuals that converged onto Provincetown around the Fourth of July holiday and the subsequent week, and um, these, uh, what, what was identified is that there was very significant uh, transmission of um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus um, occurring, um, and it occurred both in vaccinated and um, there were uh, many unvaccinated individuals who became infected, and upwards of, uh, I think it was 450 or so. Um, and what this showed was that um, when, when uh, the viral loads were being tested, so the amount of virus um, in individuals who did test positive, um, there were high, high viral loads in the unvaccinated population, but there were also high viral loads in the uh, vaccinated uh, group as well. Um, and uh, this sort of led to a, a conclusion that, that those uh, individuals who have been vaccinated and get what we call those breakthrough infections may also uh, potentially spread um, uh, virus to others. Now, I, I think, um, you know, we, we have to take that data with a grain of salt um, in terms of that transmission risk. Um, you know, we need to really see if um, what we're what we're um, the conclusions that we're drawing in terms of viral loads does translate into more infectivity. And I think, um, you know, that data will um, you know continue to be examined. Um, but it could raise that um, possibility that a vaccinated individual could uh, potentially uh, spread uh, the virus. Now, now, I think it's also important to look at the entirety of the context as well. So 
Um, first, the situation, right? These were young people. Um, there was a lot of very uh, intense social gathering, indoors, large gatherings in bars, um, with a lot of socialization without mask wearing. Um, so I, th- I think we have to think about that type of context when we're looking at this data. Um, and additionally, it's important to look at the outcomes. So even those individuals um, who did test positive um, after being vaccinated, um, almost all exclusively did very well. Um, there were only, I think there were maybe four hospitalizations, uh, which is very small compared to the total uh, number of individuals um, who uh, who were uh, involved in this outbreak. Uh, so, you know, I, I think um, it shows that the vaccines are highly protective against illness. Um, you know, those individuals who did test positive after being vaccinated generally almost exclusively had mild symptoms. Um, you know, hospitalization was very uncommon. So I think that's good. That really supports how effective these vaccines are in preventing illness. Um, but, you know, it does um, put on the radar that there may be a possibility that um, individuals who are uh, vaccinated and develop infection might uh, potentially be able to spread to others. Which is a big problem. I mean, uh, previously, I mean, weeks ago, we thought that uh, people who got vaccinated were not able to spread the virus and, in fact, possibly reach sterilizing immunity. Um, so this is it's just kind of a big shift, isn't it? You know, I think, um, you know, it does make us think about um, things a little bit differently. Um, you know, I, I think, um, you know, it's still important to maintain uh, the big picture that individuals who are unvaccinated are much more likely to develop clinical symptoms and also um, most mostly more likely, or, or they are more likely to uh, spread to others. But knowing that there is the potential for a vaccinated person um, to spread to others does make us you know, think a little bit more about um, additional measures that we need. And, you know, we can talk about um, what those might be. And, um, you know, indoor masking, you know, has been um, the primary um, focus that's been recommended. But, um, you know, it, it does make us, uh, you know, think about things in a little bit more detail when we, you know, think about what the next, you know, couple of weeks are going to look like and what we can do to help drive down transmission. Is the solution so basic as to just going back to wearing a mask when you're indoors? I mean, it seems simple, and yet it has been effective when we've dealt with the alpha variant before we had a vaccine. I mean, is it that easy? So, you know, I think um, that is, that's a key strategy. You know, I think, I still think first and foremost, vaccination is going to be the primary way that we're oh, absolutely. going to yeah, no, drive down transmission. But then we look at those additional measures and, and indoor masking um, in public areas um, is, is that next measure. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, it, it's an effective way um, to uh, reduce transmission risk. Um, and, um, you know, I th- it's, you know, unfortunately, with all the politica- politicization, it's become a complicated matter. Um, you know, personally, I don't mind uh, doing it at all. And I, you know, I've begun to do it. Um, the and neither do I. Of, neither uh, do the Connecticut I. Par- Department of Public Health actually just issued a recommendation um, now um, almost entirely statewide um, based on the amount of um, you know, virus transmission and the number of cases that uh, any indoor um, environment in public, um, you know, masking should be uh, is, is strongly recommended. So, you know, I, I think that it's sort of that next layer. Um, and then, you know, we, we think about additional measures like uh, physical distancing and um, avoiding large gatherings. You know, I think in, in some situations we should be thinking about that as well. Um, but, the ma- you know, after the vaccination, the masking is kind of that next measure um, that's needed. And, you know, right now when we're seeing high transmission, you know, I think it's it's the reasonable next step. Um, you know, I, I'm hopeful that uh, we won't reach those need for additional measures like more physical distancing and because those have substantial impact on, you know, social interactions. 
But, uh, you know, I think now we're at the point where the masking um, is the measure that uh, is rec- what's recommended. And that'll, um, you know, my, my hope is that that will be sufficient to um, kind of reduce this uh, uptick that we're seeing. So let's talk about the unvaccinated population. Our children, my grandchildren, I have five grandchildren. The oldest is six. None are vaccinated. They're getting ready to go back to school. Should they be wearing a mask? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I think that is the right measure. Um, you know, I think um, CDC just put out um, in their last uh, recommendation that in schools, all individuals, um, vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals, should be wearing masks um, because we have uh, a large proportion of kids who are not eligible for vaccination. Um, so masking, um, you know, is is the next step um, in school environments. Um, and we've seen that uh, masking can be very effective um, in schools, uh, you know, in terms of preventing transmission. And I think uh, that was successful, um, both allowing for in-person school, which I think is, is very important, um, and um, preventing uh, transmission. So, you know, I think uh, universal masking in school environments is um, going to be uh, the plan, um, you know, at least here in Connecticut. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll, uh, you know, hopefully, again, that will be the way that we're going to accommodate in-person learning, which I think is uh, is so critical. It's an interesting side note that my grandchildren don't mind wearing a mask. Um, uh, they they kind of got used to it. And what's interesting is people, you know, with these signs, I need to see my child smile. Uh, I heard someone uh, recently say the, the children who are not smiling are the ones who get COVID um, mm. because they get very sick. So, uh, you know, these protesters, uh, you know, as adults, we're trying to project our own needs on these children. But uh, overall, I think children have adapted fairly well um, to the restrictions that I, I hope are temporary until we can get enough people vaccinated. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I you know, my seven-year-old has been um, in in-person school wearing a mask and um you know, he had a great year. I think, uh, you know, going back to uh, the spring of uh, 2020, um, when, uh, you know, when kids were home, um, you know, I think any opportunity to get them back in the classroom uh, for in-person instruction, if that involved a mask, so be it. Um, but I think, uh, you know, the children seem to be uh, adapting to that uh, well. We're going to take a short we're going to take a short break. Now we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. David Bannock. Uh, we're going to talk about booster shots. Are we going to need booster shots? Uh, we're also going to talk about let's get a look at the future. Which way are we going in the state of Connecticut and in this country? You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, Saturday morning, 11 till noon on WTIC News Talk 1080 at WTIC.com. We're back live with my guest, Dr. David Bannock. Uh, David, so everybody's questioning the need or will there be a need for booster shots? Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I almost welcome the the need for a booster shot because I think we're getting there. But what do you think? What What's going to happen, especially with regard to the elderly population, uh, our parents uh, and how that moves along? So, you know, I think... Um you know, I think we're just like you said, I think we're getting there. Um, you know, there's more and more data coming out that certain populations and um, the groups that we've really got our eye on are um, those immunocompromised individuals um, and um, elderly individuals. Um, the groups that we would expect um, to sort of generate less antibody, less, um, you know, immune response to the vaccine. And that's, that's across the board with all vaccines. 
Um, you know, I think those are going to be the primary focus. You know, the data is coming out showing that, you know, as we would expect, um, you know, those groups um, do have uh, lower antibody response. Um, and I think what's even more important is that um, the data is now showing that in immunocompromised individuals, uh, specifically certain populations, um, giving a booster dose does actually boost up the level of, um, of protective antibodies. So, you know, I think we're going to be seeing uh, booster doses initially roll out in those populations. You know, we're still waiting for the FDA um, uh, authorization expansion to um, to allow for additional dose uh, doses. And I think that will happen in the coming weeks. Um, I think that'll be the initial focus um, rather than sort of a general population recommendation for uh, booster doses. But um, and I think um, there's the science supports that. You know, the, the science now um, is following up those individuals who are in the clinical trials, showing that um, you know the young, uh, re- relatively young, healthy population. You know, the antibody levels do dip over time, but they still remain relatively high, and um, they still provide that protection against um, you know symptomatic uh, illness um, in the clinical trial participants. So I think that's encouraging. Um, but so I think we've really got to focus down on those vulnerable populations, particularly the you know, compromised and elderly um, individuals. And I think in the coming months we'll see some additional recommendations uh, um, on those groups. David, when you talk about the elderly, do we need boosters in the elderly because they have a lower titer? Their titers will drop lower than in younger people. And what age are you talking about when we talk elderly? Because people have said over 75, over 65. What do you think? Mm, I think, um, you know, a few factors. Um, So, you know, generally um, with other vaccines, when we see um, older folks, um, and, you know, we're talking in the, you know, 75 plus, uh, maybe even older than that, um, you know, that's a population where, um, you know, antibody levels uh, tend to wane a bit quicker than in the uh, younger groups. Um, So, you know, I I can't predict exactly what, uh, you know, the FDA and CDC are going to identify as the cutoff um, when it comes to older populations. But, you know, and and there's sort of a linear relationship there, too, um, to some degree that, uh, you know, the older you get, uh, the higher likelihood that your immunity is going to wane over time. You know, I think the other factor is that, you know, in Connecticut and in a lot of other states, um, you know, that was the group that was prioritized to get the initial vaccination. So they were vaccinated the earliest um, after the healthcare workers. So, um, you know, taking that into account that uh, over time, you know, their antibody levels, um, you know, they've just had a longer time to wane um, based on when they got their initial doses. So, um, you know, I, I don't know exactly what cutoff they're going to use, but, uh, you know, I think we're looking in the sort of 75-plus group um, as uh, maybe a focus, but uh, you know that's still a little bit to be determined. Would you recommend when we come out with a booster, will it be an mRNA booster if you got an mRNA vaccine originally, or does it make any difference? Yeah, I suspect it will be. Um, you know, I think um, you know there's a lot of questions as to whether it needs, how how matched it needs to be. So if you got the Pfizer dose for your first. Uh, to are you definitely going to need to get a Pfizer dose for your third, or can you get a Moderna mRNA vaccine? But you know, I think the data on boosters has really focused on the mRNA vaccines, um, both um, looking at booster doses in individuals who initially got the mRNA vaccine, but also looking at um, people who got the uh, non-mRNA vaccines, like the AstraZeneca vaccine, followed by an mRNA booster. They seem that seems to really um, increase uh, antibody levels substantially. So. Um, you know, I think that'll be the focus um, in terms of additional doses, um, but, you know, still uh, to be determined. And there's studies looking at um, comparing 
Um, the uh, response with giving an mRNA vaccine after getting like the AstraZeneca or J&J versus getting you know the, a subsequent dose of J&J. So that data is still um, under review by FDA. And, um, and I think we'll get uh, more clarity from them in the coming uh, you know, weeks. Uh, another topic is uh, the need or lack thereof of mandates for vaccines. Um, you know, for example, we're saying now wear a mask when you go to a large, if you're going to be at Stop and Shop or Walmart where it's crowded and you don't know who's vaccinated or not, you should wear a mask. But yet employees are not required to wear masks. Uh, employees are certainly not required to uh, be vaccinated. Um, are we getting to that point? Because I'm a little hesitant. I mean, you, you go to a restaurant or a fast food place. Some people who work there are wearing masks, some are not. And now we have new information. Are we getting in Connecticut to where we're going to have to have some new mandates? So, you know, I think um, what we're seeing is that, um, you know, in the private sector um, and in some parts of the government, like federal government, mandates are starting to, um, to take hold. You know, I don't think we're going to see like a population level um, mandate for vaccination, but um, you know, certainly in healthcare settings, um, you know, mandates are emerging um, for healthcare workers, um, and uh, you know, many national um, hospital association and national hospital organizations and many hospitals um, are moving are are starting to um, implement mandates for healthcare workers. When it comes to other um, industries, you know, I think people are recognizing that mandates, um, you know, can can have an important role in um, in reducing spread and also providing confidence um, in the public. So, um, you know, the federal government now is um, uh, having, there's now mandatory um, vaccination for everyone in the military, and uh, now there's um, movement on mandatory vaccination for um, federal workers um, um, and uh, those who contract with the federal government. I know President Biden um, has been um, moving on that. So, you know, I think we're going to see that in in some groups and even in the private sector, too. I think organizations, um, uh, particularly those in the service sector, are going to um, start to uh, move towards mandates for their employees. So, you know, I think I don't anticipate we're going to see like a statewide mandate or anything like that. But um, I think in some groups and some sectors um, of the economy um, and of uh, you know the empl- employment, we are going to see uh, more and more movement towards mandatory vaccination. Are you surprised we haven't seen mandatory vaccination mandates in healthcare by now? Um, you know, I think um, you know a lot of organizations are moving in that direction. Um, you know, organizations here in Connecticut um, are um, are have started implementing mandatory vaccination, and um, you know, there's there's been a lot of um, uh, sort of sort of viewing this from all different angles. You know, in healthcare, um, you know, healthcare organizations. Um, the uh, you know relationship between employers and employees can get a little complicated, and but I think you know as as we see more and more large health systems um, implement mandates, you know national organizations um, now are uh, recommending mandatory vaccine for healthcare. I think more and more facilities um, and healthcare organizations are going to have the confidence to be able to move to mandatory vaccination for their employees. So I think I think that's a trend that'll continue um, in uh, you know the coming weeks and months. Uh, couldn't happen soon enough. Um, but let's uh, look at, at this. And I guess it's kind of a personal question, but uh, I've been hearing about people on the front line um, who have been working, in, especially in Florida, Alabama, Missouri. They're starting to lose their sense of empathy 
um, you know, with people who just come in, they could have been vaccinated, not getting vaccinated, still against it and spreading it and spreading it to children. Are we getting to that point where we're starting to, to lose our sense of empathy? Uh, and I'm, I'm not just asking you personally, but, you know, we have so many nurses, respiratory therapists who are working on the front line day and night and dealing with people who don't necessarily want to be helped. I, I, I'm troubled by this and, and trying to deal with it myself because I, we work with people who are at our side and we don't know if they're vaccinated or not. Are we getting to that point, David? I, you know, there's, there's certainly um, a lot of fatigue in the healthcare um, world. Um, you know, we're seeing, um, you know, now that we've, we've been uh, working through COVID now for uh, over a year and a half, um, you know, it's been exhausting. And, you know, a lot of the frontline healthcare workers are feeling very fatigued. And, you know, I think there's some element of frustration among uh, many uh, on the front lines that, um, you know, know that we have a way to prevent infection, you know, that's um, well established. I mean, the, the vaccines, you know, we, we've been talking about, um, you know, breakthrough cases, but, you know, that's really such a minority. I mean, here in Connecticut, um, the data just came out that individuals who are unvaccinated are 17 times more likely than a vaccinated individual to test positive. Um, and the risk of hospitalization is so much higher among individuals who are not vaccinated that, you know, healthcare workers, you know, recognize that and that's, you know, being communicated, um, reasonably well, um, and, you know, still seeing hesitancy in vaccine uptake, I think, you know, many do find that frustrating. Um, and, uh, you know, I, th I think you know, we're, we're doing all we can to maintain empathy. But, um, you know, I think the fatigue does play into that. Um, and, uh, you know, we're trying to encourage vaccination and a lot of incentivization to, um, to get people vaccinated. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, we're still obligated to uh, to work with our patients and, you know, our colleagues and encourage vaccination, um, you know, but the fatigue uh, is real and, uh, you know, I think it needs to be acknowledged. David, thank you. Thank you for all you do. Thanks for spending time with us today. And thank you for always being a resource for me and for this program um, as we fight this battle. Thank you. All right. Thanks for having me on. Uh, many thanks to our studio producer, Anthony Dorenzo has been on the board. Jeff and Ch Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for healthy rounds. Until next week, please stay healthy and please, please, please get vaccinated. It's the only way we're going to win this war. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.